to get people in this profession, we have to recognize that people have to have lives, you know, their mothers and their parents and fathers, and they have interests besides medicine. And I think that has shifted as well. She owned, she sold, she worked for Banfield, she rose in the ranks there, then she needed a change. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetEx Leaders community online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today my guest with the cool career is Dr. Kelly Cooper. Dr. Cooper tumbled out of veterinary school and into surprisingly early practice ownership in New Mexico. It was the life she wanted. She was the local doctor you saw in the grocery store aisle. But when she got her own team humming, she wanted more. That led her to sell and take a new job developing doctors at Banfield and up and up the executive food chain. Then she stepped away for a few months and figured out she missed the work. So now she's full-time as an associate in a private practice again. So... Here's how it all started. When you were a veterinarian, pre-veterinary school, and then in veterinary school, and then after, did you know that you wanted to own a practice? I did, yes. Okay, you for sure did. Why were you sure? And that I don't know if that felt like the exception to the rule. Did a lot of people you know in your class say, maybe I will, but probably not? Or did you have a lot of people who said, I'm going to go own too? You know, I had a lot of classmates who were interested in owning, but not for a while. Actually, a lot of my classmates do own practices, but there was definitely a hesitation to do so early, you know, early on, of course, when you're coming out of school, the chatter was usually, I'm going to go, you know, work for someone and I can work anywhere for a year. So it doesn't work out. I'll just go do something else. But yeah, I always thought being a practice owner was the end-all, be-all of being a veterinarian. Okay. Yeah. Did you think I'm this thing they're talking about these four, five, six years that somebody's going to go be an associate and then eventually own? Were you like, nope, I want to get out and immediately start thinking about business ownership? I think it was in the back of my mind, Brendan. What I did know is I wanted a lot of independence. Okay. <laughs> like I, wanted, I wanted a lot of freedom to make my own decisions and to find my way. And I think that equated to becoming a practice owner. I had no plans when I went to the practice I went to work at to buy that practice. And yet a year later, I bought that practice. It's it's serendipitous. I bought that practice and was excited to do so because it was an opportunity, I think, to make my stake in the world, you know, to hang my shingle out. And I really wanted to be like the small town veterinarian where, you know, you go to like, you go to the five and dime and everybody's like, hey, doc, how's it going? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they know who you are. Yeah, because those were the types of practices that I had done my preceptors at in vet school, right? Those are the types of practices when I was a kid, I would go volunteer at. And so that's what I thought like the Mecca was for practicing doctors. So if you kind of found a practice and then, oh, this turns out, I wasn't looking, but this turns out to be a practice I will buy. And pretty soon out of vet school, what was it like? How long did you own that practice? And was your understanding of what it was to own a veterinary practice correct when you started? Or as you look back, you're like, no, I had no idea what it was going to be like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll say, let's go with the latter. <laughs> I had no clue what the heck I was getting myself into. Okay. 
And I had family members that tried to counsel me on that. And I just blew them off. Like, <laughs> ah, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to do this thing. And yeah, I just jumped right in, like jumped right into the fire. And and how that happened though, was I went to work at a practice with a veterinarian that was legally blind and had all both feet out the door, right? Maybe a shoelace still left in the door. But two weeks after I showed up, he left. He actually left the practice and moved an hour and a half away and left me to run his practice. So I effectively was running his practice for him and had to figure out a whole lot of things without his involvement because he basically just kind of disappeared. So after a few months of that, I was like, well, heck, I might as well buy this place. (laughs) I'm putting this much investment into it. And so I bought it with no money, by the way. He like funded a good chunk of it and uh, a bank funded a little bit of it, but I had zero assets and student debt and I bought a practice. So I was well in and over my head. And also it sounds like zero mentorship or would you, did you have mentors that you could yeah. reach out to with those first couple of years? Yeah. So I started with zero mentorship and keep in mind, I'm a brand new doctor pretty much. And I'm, um, I know zip about business. I know less than that around people management yeah. and leadership And I am in the middle of um, Southeast New Mexico in a rural community where I have no family and no friends. And so I have basically, you know, isolated myself from, from my people who would have supported me in one way. But I recognized I had to find some help. I actually found there was a a doctor that was retired Mm -hmm. that lived in the county and um, he's an amazing man. His name is Dr. Jack Kirk. And he was very savvy, um, even though he was retired, very current, very savvy. And when I got into a bind, he'd drive over and help me, you know, and walk me through my first really hard cases. And so from a medical technical aspect, I, I found help and I would reach out to even my competitive veterinarians around me and everybody was very willing, you know, and gracious to be helpful. On the other side of it, which, you know, running a business and practicing medicine is a little bit medicine, but it's a whole lot people skills and it's a whole lot of business skills that I didn't have. And I didn't know where to get that. So I read a lot, you know, <laughs> like I, I read books. I went to conferences. I consumed that econ- economics at the time and whatever else I could find. And I just kind of figured it out. But in hindsight, when I ran into what a coach was, and that was after I, I went to work at Banfield, where there's a lot of development support, and I, I, I was introduced to my first professional coach, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, because that person helped me work through what I needed to work through, right? And helped me figure out what I needed to do. And they didn't have any of the answers. That's not their job. Their job is just to widen your perspective and recognize, you know, that there's other ways of doing things. And then when you get mentors in your life, somebody who is further ahead of you on that path, right? Someone who's been there, done that, and has, you know, the war wounds to talk about with you, it takes you off the island that you're on and gives you a source of a safe place, you know, to learn and grow and give you feedback and challenge you without you just relying on yourself, which I did a lot. And it was very stressful. I mean, so I cried a lot, a lot. My first couple of years. So wait, you just, so before we jump, I want to get to Banfield, but I love the fact that you yeah. jumped, you found this thing later on that was like, oh, that's exactly what I needed. But way after you'd already sold your practice and moved to another transition. So in the space, you thought independence, I'll get to do my practice my way. And over the course of yeah. your practice ownership, you probably figured out 
through trial and error and yeah, long nights and miserable cries when you just hit the wall with people, <laughs> you figured it all out. So now you've got your practice. I assume it's just humming along and you like it and you're independent. You get to do things your way in New Mexico. What change that got it? So you sold and then went to one of the biggest corporate groups of veterinary hospitals, Banfield. Yeah. And I got to back up because I didn't have it all figured out, by the way. Okay. I had gone from not knowing anything and over, I, I owned that practice for 16 years. Okay. And I, I went from being a horrible leader and a micromanager, and I would run people off so fast to one that had built a really engaged and empowered team that we all loved working together and they made my life easier so I could do other things because they were so great at their jobs, right? So I had made that transition as a leader over 15 years, right? <laughs> it, did, it did not happen overnight. You know, this is definitely a slow and sometimes painful process. But at the end of that 15 years, what I recognized is I want to go develop people. I want to go empower people. I want to go help others learn all these lessons that I've learned because this is really exciting. I mean, I love medicine. I love my community. But what else is out there in development? And so I took a really big risk. I was like, you know, I, I kind of was thinking I'd go into industry or something. I was looking, you know, I wanted to kind of move back home and to Texas and I was looking around and Banfield was hiring quite a few leaders at the time. And I knew, I knew nothing about Banfield except for what I Googled. And that was not great at the moment. And so I reached out, like, there's just, you know, the drama, right? The drama comes up on top when you Google stuff. So I reached out to some friends. I had friends that worked at Banfield and had friends that worked at BCA that were in leadership. And they gave me some great advice. They said, absolutely go do it. Like there's a lot of great things happening at Banfield. So, you know, go check it out. And so I, I just threw my hat in the ring and I didn't even have a good reference. Like my reference was my state inspector, my competitors and my husband, <laughs> right? Like this is who my references are because I was so isolated. But Banfield, yeah, Banfield said yes and took me on board. And what was exciting is my role was about developing doctors. And I had 35 doctors that I was responsible for and 14 hospitals. And I got so much development and to learn how to be a better leader and how to be, you know, a better manager, a better leader, just a better people person that was just invaluable. What did that transition feel like? You are relatively isolated. So you do get the small town vet experience, but as a veterinarian, you are very isolated where you are. And then to switch to that, I'm back in Texas, and now there's people all the time everywhere. I'm sent out to talk to people. I'm in rooms with people yeah. everywhere. Was there any shock to it or did it was it just really fun from the get-go? Well, I mean, being a veterinarian is talking all day anyway, okay. right? Like you're constantly, yeah, you've got clients, you're in rooms, you're, you know, I mean, unless you're just hiding in your surgery suite for the day and, and just neuter cats or something, right? Like you're, you're kind of out there. It's a very talking job. And I am an introvert, like many vets, I don't get energy, you know, from talking to people all day long. But what was different in my role, um, which was a field operations role, is I could go visit a hospital and then I could get in my car and drive for 30 minutes and decompress or, you know, listen to a book on tape and just kind of get quiet before I went back into my own hospital. So that's how I balanced that. I'd say my biggest shocker in moving from practice owner to a corporate world is in a corporate world, there's a lot of people who care about what you do and want to have a say in it. And we call it like the matrix that's around you, right? You've got your line manager, you've got your line manager's line manager or dotted line to this role over here is I quickly got schooled on 
I couldn't just do stuff <laughs> without talking to people about it. And when you're the boss of your place, right? Like you, you do have to work with your team, but still you are the ultimate decider in a corporate world. That's not true. You know, there's a lot of people who are invested in care and I saw it immediately. First, I kind of saw it like, as a, oh my gosh, like this is going to be so hard to get anything done. But then I also realized that all those people's perspectives was really valuable because you came out with a better solution, right? You came out with a better answer and more people were bought in to that answer as well. But that was a little bit of an embarrassing and painful lesson behind that. Just because you had been used to being able to go your own way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you also have to bear all the ownership responsibility for that too, right? Like you're alone and it's like you make the call, you're also the owner of the outcome of that decision by yourself. When the culture was with that matrix of people, so was that a benefit where you really did feel that people did pull together and shared failure, shared success? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Once I figured it out, right, as a skill, how to do that and how to bring others along with me sooner, it's just not my natural personality style. Yeah. Definitely better outcomes, better sharing of successes or I don't want to say failures, but, you know, things that didn't go as well. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, Listen to a free training webinar or apply. Visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. When you had crafted kind of your entire team in New Mexico and then switched to this new role where you were kind of going to go into these locations all over the region and visit and try to help doctors develop, what did that development work look like? Was it a lot like you thinking back to the way you used to be, or was it actually a much wider range of things that people needed help with? The first thing I learned is you don't ever tell a doctor what to do. <laughs> Like managing a doctor is like nailing jello to a tree. Like it's got to be their idea. They have to be very bought in. They have to want to do it. So the whole concept of I'm going to come in and I'm going to tell you, right, you have to do A, B, and C is not, okay. <laughs> not a thing. So there is that. And then what I also quickly learned is that there are those that are open to coaching. They want it. They want feedback. They want development. They're hungry for it. They are coachable. And then there's people who just are waiting for you to stop talking and go away. <laughs> and you quickly figure out who's who. And so for the doctors that were very coachable and wanted more, as a leader, it's a joy. As someone who loves to develop people, that's where you want to spend your time. And that's where I spent my time. 
I invested in those people who wanted more. They wanted more leadership. They wanted more medicine. And my role was to facilitate getting it to them. You know, I sometimes it was me teaching them. Sometimes it was me connecting them to the person that would teach them. Um, but if, if I had people and they're like, no, I'm, I'm good. Like I've got all the answers. I do not need your help. I don't want you to tell me what to do. My involvement with them was different. It's definitely, it's a portfolio management approach to, you know, it's kind of like an 80, 20 rule is where I spent my time is where I would get the most um, return on the investment. Were most of the places, it was probably a wide variety. Were there some places that were just absolutely in struggling crisis mode and, it had been determined part of this was, ah, the doctors are struggling and other places that were humming along perfectly. And you were just taking those people from 95 to 100. Was it just that wide a spectrum? You know, yeah. I mean, every hospital is different, right? And that's not a corporate thing. That's just a thing, you know, business to business. Um, it's how successful a place is, is really dependent on those leaders that are in that hospital. And so when you walk into a hospital, that has great leadership, you know, and not that they have all the answers, but they really are invested in doing what's best, you know, for the hospital, for their people. You feel it the first two minutes in the building. And so those managers and leaders, I, I think of them as unicorns because it takes a lot of work. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of priorities, but that is a priority for them. And then when you walk into a hospital where you don't have that same leadership, it's in completely different atmosphere. You know, um, the team doesn't want to talk to you. The team, they don't, you know, they're not making eye contact. They don't greet you. They, you know, they say what they think you want to hear, but you can just tell, right? It's not the same versus a hospital that's just running and really loving what they're doing every day. And so, you know, for the hospitals that are doing great is how do you really help them be better and just get obstacles out of their way? For the hospitals that are struggling, it's more of a deep dive and assessing why are they struggling. I would kind of equate it to doing like a physical exam on a dog is my job is as like, I'm like the doctor of this hospital, right? So I'm not, I'm here to fix the hospital. I'm a hospital doctor. I don't know how to say that, but I go in and I'm going to take a history, right? I'm going to get some background. I'm going to look at data. I'm going to look at reports on how they're doing with their, you know, whatever numbers is financials or, you know, services they're delivering. And I'm going to have an assessment and then I'm going to start talking to people, right? And just getting the temperature of the room and, and what's going on. And usually pretty quickly, you get a sense of where the underlying root cause is and you kind of dig in and ask a lot of open-ended questions and, and you'll get there. And then you put a plan together, like a diagnostic or treatment plan. Like, how do I help this team? What does this team need from me right now? Does this team need encouragement and recognition? Do they need some accountability? Do they need another leader? Like, what is it ultimately that, you know, we need to get them to so they get from point A to point B because they're obviously struggling. And so that is a lot of what the role is of, you know, the multi-unit leader that goes out to the hospitals is to do just that. Can I ask, when you, when you would make that plan, oftentimes, would you kind of go back, observe all the information, and then go back and make a plan and then present it? Having talked to lots of people, but would you make the plan? Or was it really important that it be, everybody needs to be bought in? I have an idea, or we've talked about this being important. Do we want to move forward? So how much of yeah. it was you coming up with a plan or collaborating and making sure everybody's bought in? It absolutely has to be their plan. Okay. You know, the hospital has to own it. If the um, leaders are invested and, and they want to improve, 
they have to be a hundred percent bought in in what's being done. I make a plan, but I'm not there every day. You know, I come in every couple of weeks for an hour maybe and check in, but they're the ones that have to bring it to life. So they have to own it, believe in it, want to see it through my role as, and basically the role I'm playing is a coach and a mentor, you know, even like a consultant, right? This is kind of what a consultant does when they come into a yes. hospital is I am providing them the guidance and advice because they don't know they're stuck. They know what they know and having an outside perspective come in and kind of show them, Hey, here's what's working. Here's what's not working. Let's put a plan together, together. Right. And then what do you think? Are you going to do this? But if I do it for them, they're not going to execute on it. You know, they're just going to like be like, okay, thanks, Dr. Cooper. (laughs) Have a nice day. And you know, you go back two weeks later, you're like, so how's it going? They're like, with what? That thing we talked about, you know, again, this might have been across all the way across the spectrum, but I'm, I know you mentioned in the beginning when you'd come in, it sounded like sometimes mindset was the big issue. So for whatever reason, the leaders were not in the right mindset. And other times it probably sounds like maybe there were just things that needed to be shifted around or skills that needed to be learned was one more prominent than the other, where if there was a big problem, it was usually because people's attitude and mindset was the major problem or was it a logistic thing? Yeah. Well, it always starts with attitude, right? You have to have the right person. You have to have the right person in the right role to begin with. And we want to hire for attitude before we hire for skill in all things. So that's where it began. Was this the right person? And then I'd say, secondly, what's their engagement level? You know, are they really engaged with their job? Are they engaged with the company? Are they, do they trust leadership? You know, there's all these things that if they, like, maybe they're great at what they do, but there's, you know, been a relationship break or they're not trusting, you know, the leadership. And so having to diagnose and understand that also is really important. And then if there's a skill that's lacking, they don't know, you know, they don't know it's lacking. They don't, you know, they know what they know. So my role would be to also help get them to that point where they understood, okay, I'm good at A, B, and C, but this is a different space for me. Here's an example. Let's say you take a technician who's a really great technician and you promote them into a, a leadership position in the hospital. So just because they're a great technician does not mean they're a great leader to run that hospital. Two totally different skill sets. They have a really steep learning curve to understand how to be a people leader and manager of a hospital, right? There's tasks and then there's skills that they need to have. And so you've got to really get in with them side by side and help them learn those skills. On the flip side, you could hire someone from the outside, like outside veterinary medicine. Like maybe they managed a restaurant and they're great with people skills and they, they know how to, you know, lead and manage a, a business, but they know nothing about veterinary medicine. So they may have the people stuff, but they don't know the content knowledge of what they're managing, right? So their skill set is different and steep still so that they can get up to speed. So you're definitely working on one way or the other. They need a lot of help. So this job for what you're talking about, where you get to go in constantly to different places and help make change happen. Whereas if you've got your business running perfectly, a lot of times it can feel like I don't know, things are running pretty well and I've delegated and I'm not as important. This is like, I'm going into these places where I'm important, doing important work every day. Somewhere along the line, how long were you with Banfield and what sort of generally made you think, I want to switch to something different? Because this sounds fun, Sog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, this was fun. I actually really love this. Uh, And this part of my time with Banfield, I was Banfield for 11 years, but six years was doing this particular thing. 
And then from there, I, and I, I loved it. There's always new challenges. It's never finished or fixed or perfect, right? Like there's always going to, there's always in business, there's always something, right, to work on. But then I went to a regional position where I was coaching the people that did what I had done, right? I kind of went up a level and did it regionally for about two and a half years. And then I went to a higher level, a division level, and was a vice president. And in that, it was completely different work, right? That was more about enterprise centralized leadership and project and project leadership and management. So yeah, a total of 11 years with Banfield. And then this last year, yeah, I, t- I took the right turn in my career again, and I went back into practice. And I mean, we talked about this before, you really liked yeah. it. And so I, I am curious about one thing about the step up. So first you're, they bring you in as a coach yeah. and then you kind of become a coach's coach. And then obviously you move into the, the higher executive role. Was there any one particular difference between the kind of work where you were closer and closer? Was it getting farther and farther from the work or was it something about the work that really shifts when you get high enough and you have to get big enough up in the kind of the, at the boardroom level Maybe one thing, you don't have to get hyper-specific. I'm curious, oh, is gosh, there anything so many, yeah. in particular that was super different that was like, this is just not quite as satisfying or it's stressful in a way that just doesn't feel right? Oh, yeah. it's um, Well, that's a really great question. I Just moving out of, I'd say, field operations as a whole, right, where you are working with the people that are doing the work on the ground and then those managers that support them into a centralized you know, the centralized, basically the corporate headquarters of where the work is, um, you know, what the company's working on is decided is really different from the standpoint of it's less about the tactical work of the field and more about the strategic work of the business. And so it's a different lens, you know, instead of kind of looking at the nuts and bolts of how things get done out in the hospitals, you're suddenly looking upwards and outwards at where is this company going and, um, you know, where are we headed? And so that was a pretty, that was, a, I'd say, a pretty big transition for me is learning how to move from tactical to strategic thinking in that way. And I found it to be a little more challenging than I imagined it would be. So you could have, if you bounced out of Banfield, you could have said, you know what? I had a great time owning a practice again. I am so hyper qualified to own a practice again. I could pick the best practice. This is going to be great. But then you decided, no, I think I want to be kind of a full-time associate. What was the thinking behind, I want to get back into the medicine and I don't want to do explicitly, I don't want my role to be, I have to do the leadership, I have to do the management. Yeah, it's completely different from how I'd kind of lived my whole life. Absolutely. And I thought about owning, I was like, oh, heck no, right? (laughs) I've done that. And there's great things about owning, but I also know what kept me up at night and I know what stressed me out. And so I thought, you know, I don't, I don't think that's where, where I want to go. Like a lot of veterinary medicine is the same, you know, it has, there's a lot that hasn't changed, but culturally there's a lot that really has changed over these last, you know, this last decade. And you think about, you know, what COVID has brought and just um, the generational changes. I really wanted to see what it was like just to be back at practice again, just to be back on the front lines, seeing pets in the rooms, working with the team and understand this is the life of a veterinarian. And especially for me, because I'm very, you know, I'm very sensitive to the conversations around burnout and suicide in our profession and how so many are struggling when they come out of school and come into, you know, their first practice experience of just juggling all the soft skill demands, you know, that doctors have and are not really taught in school. 
And um, I have a passion for that is that early career veterinarian and early career leader, because that is the, I think that's the most painful part of learning how to practice and be a leader in veterinary medicine. I just wanted to get back in their shoes again, you know, and see like, what does this feel like? Because I haven't done it for about 10 years and I can't assume I still know right. it's different. And so I'm not going to know unless I just go do it myself. Can I ask, having already been sensitive to those struggles of the early career where you jumped into practice ownership and all kinds of things, you had to learn all the non-clinical skills all at once and you just had to do it. In the 10 years since you were as much in touch with the field, has it changed a lot? So in the doctors, in the technicians and the receptionists who are around you now, has the culture of how this practice feels, is it way different than when you first went into practice? And, and what are the, any differences? I'd say a lot is the same, just because the things that hold true over time are, you know, how to interact with people how to show empathy, you know, how to listen, how to build relationships. I don't think those change, right, with culture or technology. I think for the most part, people are people and, you know, how they want to be treated is is just human nature. And so that component, I think, is a good foundation for learning, regardless of the times. I'd say what has changed are things like, demand for veterinary care, you know, and when I was in business, we were trying to figure out how to build a class. Right. There was a worry. There was too, yes, too many veterinarians. Yeah. There's like, two, oh yeah, that was the word of the day, right? <laughs> right? There's too many veterinarians. And so we're, you know, we're trying to figure out how to grow our practice and build more, more client base. And today, every day, the receptionists are turning people away because we have no space to see them. And I can't imagine what that feels like is every day. It's like, I'm sorry, we can't see you. We can't see you. It's not because we don't want to, it's because we can't, you know, and that's an emotional toll on everybody to say, gosh, I, I really want to bring this pet back. I really need to help this pet. And I know I've already got like 15, 18 something cases, you know, scheduled for the day and it's just not possible. So I'd say that's one of the biggest differences I see. I think there's a little bit of a generational change. You know, I love that the, you know, the, the millennials and, and the, the you know, Gen Zs are much more about work-life balance and a lot more about having a life outside of work because that definitely was not a Gen X thing. I, you know, I think we, you know, we were taught vet school street cred is you start at seven, you work till seven, you don't eat lunch, you don't sit down and you're on call, you know, and you just go bust it. And that's what it is to be a veterinarian. And I think that paradigm has shifted and it's not that if, to get people in this profession, we have to recognize that people have to have lives, you know, their mothers and their parents and fathers, and they have interests besides medicine. And I think that has shifted as well. Want to reach out to Dr. Cooper? Email her at kccooperdbm at gmail.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave a review wherever you listened. Tell your friends in VetNet about us. And remember, this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to solving your leadership headaches in our VetX Leaders community. Learn more at drdavenickel.com. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.